Welcome back, everybody. This is week 38 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament, and it's week two of our five-week series of Isaiah. So hopefully, if you didn't get a chance to listen to week 37, that will help you get your bearings. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of the history or introduction this week, just because I feel like I want to take all the time I can in the actual verses. So if you missed it, jump back into 37 and listen to the first five or 10 minutes to kind of get your footing. But this week, I think, I, I think Isaiah teaches us that he is a prophet for all the places and all the time. I can't even really imagine what it must be like to feel like you're receiving revelation for multiple dispensations and try to keep it all in your head at the same time and then find a way to condense it down into doctrine that could be consumed at any one of those historical points and still be appreciated and have it be enriching. I think what you'll find this week is he's going to teach a lot of positive and negative. Maybe is the best way to say it. You're going to see a lot of commentary about Babylon. He's going to use places like Babylon and Assyria and Persia to be object lessons, basically, things that are actually happening in his time that will then apply forward to other times. The time of the Savior, the time of the Restoration, the time of the end of days, right before the Second Coming. All of those object lessons that he's giving us with those, you know, adversaries of the different cities, they're going to apply to us in a hundred different ways. But for me, like I mentioned last week, the most powerful way to apply Isaiah is if you search for Jesus Christ. Not just stories about him, but things that teach you about his character. I think for me, the most, the resonating witness I got from studying these verses is that there is peace and joy in studying the words of the Savior, no matter which prophet speaks of him. That's what Isaiah is trying to get across, that there's all these dangers and all these hardships coming, but there is safe harbor in the hope of Jesus Christ. So I want you to watch for that. Just like last week, last week I would tell you also, watch for your stewardship. Uh, if you have a prayer in your heart about whatever it is, whatever your little sphere of influence is, and you seek to enrich it, the words of Isaiah can help you. Uh, just keep that lens on as you study and ideas will come to your mind. I think Isaiah is a man of profound wisdom, and it's a little hard to understand him. So as always, this is a week where you're going to really want the notes. So open those up, click on a few links to get into the actual like modern revelation that applies here. And hopefully between the prophets of our day and some commentary from me and the actual scriptures themselves, you'll be able to enjoy this second week of Isaiah. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes, and let's get started. Where we begin in chapter 13, you're going to see Isaiah reference this chapter as a burden of Babylon. That phrase, especially if you go in the footnotes, you can see that that just means he has a hard message to lift up. I think this is powerful just right from the get-go because, you know, a lot of the messages we hear from our prophet are revered. When they post on Instagram, they get a thousand wonderful, happy comments. I'm sure they get a whole bunch of negative as well, but I don't know that Isaiah got any likes or any positive comments. These were hard things to hold up, but that's what he was called to do. So he chooses to do it. What I love is the message he sends right out of the gate in 13. It's, it feels like a pep rally to me. Like that's what I have written at the top of the chapter. It's, he is calling to the righteous. So his message is a hard one for all those who have abandoned the prophets and abandoned the law. But for those who have been consecrated and are choosing to listen, his message is one of rejoicing. It reminds me of when we would go to Ohio State football games and there would be hours upon hours of buildup before the actual battle that happened on the field. And they would fly, you know, scarlet and gray colors. They would, the band would play, people would have games and they'd like cheer in the parking lot. That's what he's talking about. So if you look at in verse two, lift ye up a banner upon the high mountains. He's He's saying there's hard things coming and I need the righteous to participate in this big spiritual pep rally. Lift up the banners, lift up your voices, exalt your voices. In three, he's talking about how I've commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones. These are, he is calling out to the real fans of Jehovah and asking them to come forward. And what I love is what happens. It's the same thing that happens in the horseshoe when people are getting together for a Buckeye game. There is a tumultuous noise. When that many saints who are ready to lift up their voices to God come together, there is a tumultuous noise. And it is not a noise of fear, and it is not a noise of 
frustration. It is a noise of rejoicing and hope. That's what he's asking. There's going to be this shift and this change. And he he's asking people to rally together. And then he talks about what it feels like to be on the other team's side. Those who have turned against the prophets, those who have set aside the law, he describes what they feel in this same moment. So if you look from like seven on, this is where you get that feel. Therefore, all hands shall, all, sorry, therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. Isn't that what you're going for when you have an opposing team on a football field? <laughs> that your tumultuous noise will make the opponent's fans just like melt a little bit and fear. I think it's, you know, that, I think that's, that's what he's trying to do. It's, it will create a recognition in the other side that, wait, I might be on the wrong team. In fact, that's what's going to happen as they go a little bit further. You'll see that they recognize it in eight. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They'll be afraid. There's going to be pangs of sorrows. It's not that he's rejoicing in all these people experiencing this sorrow, but I think it's, he, I think Isaiah is a prophet who knows that sometimes sorrow is the only way to come to repentance. And all of these people, even though they might be ripe for destruction at this point in time, they will have an opportunity to learn more down the road in the spirit world when they're taught. In fact, we'll see that in the verses this week. There is hope for them down the road. I think it's the same thing that we saw with Noah when he talked about the flood and Enoch and Moses when they referenced the flood, that at certain points in time, the wickedness has gone too far and there needs to be a destruction, but that there is always hope beyond that point for all those souls who, who need it. And, and I, anyway, you'll, you'll see that in the verses. He also warns about the actual destruction that will happen because of Babylon. Babylon isn't a big, fierce enemy at this point in time, but they're this rising power. First, Assyria grows and gets strong and becomes this big threat. And then eventually Babylon consumes Assyria. And then over time, Persia consumes Babylon. And honestly, I think one of the big messages of this week's chapters is that it doesn't really matter who the big scary guy is in town. All of them eventually will be consumed. All of them will fall. Go on the right team. This is the only team in the history of the world where you know the outcome before you even begin. Get on the right team. That's his message. So you're going to see some consequences play out. Like you'll see in 10 that there is a lack of light. You're going to see that a few times this week, that when people retreat or when there is apostasy, there is a lack of light and that causes frustration and anger. And that carries you all the way into chapter 14. So when you go into chapter 14, this creates a bit of a shift. So in 14, he says, even though all these hard things happen, and even though so many of his of his covenant children have turned away from him, he will still choose them. So if you look in verse one, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel. This is talking about now Isaiah has shifted his time frame and he's talking about something that will happen far in the future, this great gathering that we're participating in. And he talks about what will happen, that they're going to rule over their oppressors in two. And I don't think this is necessarily the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians. This is that all those things that weighed them down, all the dumb idols and all the misunderstandings and the changes in their ordinances and covenants, all of that will be clarified and they'll be able to, I don't know, master the natural man a little bit. Those are their oppressors. When you look in verse three, it goes even a little further. It says that they will rest from their sorrow, from their fear and their hard bondage. This happens a few times literally in the Israelite history where they are, you know, allowed to leave exile, allowed to return home to Jerusalem, and they experience this feeling. But I think ultimately this feeling comes as their hearts turn to the Savior Jesus Christ before the second coming. That's a big piece of what the gathering is, that the children of Israel will turn their hearts to Jesus Christ. And that's where you find rest from sorrow, freedom from fear, and a release from hard bondage. Okay, things shift a little bit in the middle of 14, and you don't want to miss it. So in 14, he talks about the adversary, but he does it in a way that is a little bit, he uses a reference point of the king of Babylon. So in a most scripture, Babylon is used as this wicked, it's a symbol for wickedness. So the king of Babylon is the king of wickedness, and he uses that as a metaphor to teach you more about the adversary. And it's fascinating to study it. So a few things you're going to see is 
when the king of Babylon actually falls, in fact, when he dies, they talk about his experience that will happen in hell. And so he says, when he gets there, this is around verse nine, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee. People are going to rise to see who this great king of Babylon is who came down to meet them. And then they speak in 10, and they all shall speak and say unto thee, art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is gone. All of a sudden, all those worldly mights and powers have been stripped away. Death is this great equalizer, both for the righteous and for the wicked. And so, he is now brought among all of them. Here's where it gets really interesting. When you flip the page, he shifts it directly to Lucifer. So, again, we've been talking about this prince of darkness, this king of Babylon, and now you get a more specific reference. He talks about his fall. And I thought it was fascinating to study what happens in 13. This is taking you almost back to those pre-mortal councils when Lucifer fell. And all of these references say, I, right? I will ascend into heaven. This is Lucifer speaking. I will exalt my throne. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation and in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights in 14. I will be like the most high. One of the the talks I read, it's in this week's notes, but it's from Elder Oaks. And he talked about how one of the most sinister parts of Satan's strategy is that he intended to be exalted. He really believed he could leapfrog over all the sacrifice and all the trial and, and be like the Most High. Some even reference him kind of like a mock savior in that he wanted, to, he wanted to take on the role that the savior did. He just didn't want any of the sacrifice. So, what's fascinating to me is that teaches you a lot about the heart of Lucifer. Part of the reason I think he wanted no agency for any of us is because if there is no sin, then there's no need for a suffering Savior. There's no need for him to offer anything to us. So, of course, he's going to push us and tempt us to want to be part of his strategy, which is, I won't let anybody sin. It's this great counterfeit, and it is hard to read for me. I was just like, oh, it's so blatant what his motivations are. What I love is what you see in 15 and 16. So, as he is brought down low, then people see him as he is. So, in 16, they shall see thee narrowly, look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake the kingdoms? I don't think it's so much that Lucifer is going to look wildly different to us then. I think it's that we will know truth and light in a way that we can't even fathom now. And just like we saw with Moses, when he sees Jesus Christ and he sees brightness in its pure form, then when he encounters the adversary, he's like, who are you that I should worship you? Like it's the contrast is so stark that he knows exactly who Lucifer is and refuses to bow down to him. That's what I think we have to teach our teenagers as we are building them up, it's, it can't be so much, let me teach you about the adversary, let me teach you about his sneaky strategies. That kind of, you know, like defensive strategy won't work as solidly as an offensive strategy of, let me tell you who you are. The more I can help you understand your divine nature and eternal destiny, the stronger you will become and the more clearly you will see the adversary. This big, boisterous, frightening creature will all of a sudden become small to you because his powers are diminished when you increase the light of Christ. I just feel like that's the message of Isaiah. He wants us to rise up and cast this out. What I love is when you go into that second column on the same page, you see the Savior's words. He also uses the word I over and over again. I will rise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts. He's going to cut off Babylon. In 24, surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass as I have purposed. He uses that same word, but when the Savior uses those words, it's always in service. It's not self-serving. It's how can I help the greater good? How can I help my Father in Heaven's plan roll forth? That's what the Savior teaches. And then He promises, who's going to turn it back? Once I set things in motion, who can turn it back? That's in 27. And then He wraps it all up in 32 when He talks about how He hath founded Zion. Remember, Isaiah's goal is never just to teach destruction, it's to remind us of the hope. And if you are an example of the believers, if you're here and you're trying to learn His gospel, then this is you. You're you're standing on ground that the Lord founded, and it cannot fall away. So, I think there's peace and hope at the very end of chapter 14.
Do you remember last week how we talked about how Isaiah's job is basically to teach you about the controlled burn that's coming to this forest, that there there needs to be a big shift that's going to happen so that there can be room for new growth, because the existing growth abandoned all things. That's sort of what you're going to read about in chapter 24. He's talking about apostasy and how it happens, why it happens, and how we can avoid it. I also think a big message of 24 is the joy that comes when you hold fast. So I'm going to try and focus there, but let me set the stage a little bit by teaching you what I learned about apostasy. So he talks about how at the end of days, there will be this emptiness that comes to the earth and it all comes through apostasy. So in verse one, behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it upside down and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. This is the prophecy that they heard about for generations that if they don't hold on to the word and their peculiar identity as a people of God with a, a covenant to uphold, then they will lose those blessings. And that's what he's teaching. But when he goes a little further, he talks about how they fell away. So after he talks about the land being emptied in four, he says, the earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. I really loved that word choice. I think it says something about this weak feebleness, right? It's um, When I think of something languishing, I think of like a plant that never gets the right amount of sunshine. I have a house plant that has this issue right now. It is not thriving. It is languishing because it's not getting the nutrients it needs. Um, and this one is my fault. But in the children of Israel's situation, it's their own fault. They're choosing that. So he's warning about languishing. And then he talks about where the apostasy the root of the apostasy is. And it's the same root that applies to our apostasy today. So in five, the earth also is defiled of the inhabitants thereof because, and then there's three reasons. So you want to circle these in your notes, but one, they have transgressed the laws. Two, they changed the ordinances. And three, they broke the everlasting covenant. This people that were supposed to be a light to the world have started to manipulate and contort the words of God. And honestly, my heart just sort of broke for God. And as I was reading this, I just, I can't imagine what that must feel like to be betrayed by your posterity like that and to to give them such a gift and hope so highly in their potential and, and have them twisted. It just kind of made my heart hurt a little bit. And I think that's where he is. He's talking about them as a vine that is just languishing. Um, and he talks about the results that will happen. In 11, he says, well, 10, there's going to be confusion. 11, there's a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. Most people reference this as part of the great apostasy. Like before the restoration, that phase between the Savior's apostles and when the first vision occurs, this great apostasy where joy is darkened. That doesn't mean that there is no happiness. I think all of us know people who have a darkened joy, but still experience happiness. It just means there's no lasting happiness. All those little joyous moments, the weddings, all the happy things that happen, the birth of children, they can't last the same way if there's no sealing power. And I think that's what he's trying to reference. The joy, the real lasting joy is darkened. And then in 13, you get this feeling that he's just not giving up on his vineyard. So he talks about shaking the tree. You know, it's this I'm going to do everything I can to get every last piece of fruit that is available, and I'm going to gather it in. And then it shifts to talking about the righteous. So if you look in 14, they shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, and they shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore, glorify glorify ye the Lord in the fires. Okay, here's what I thought was really cool about this. When you go in the footnotes, you can see that this word fires also can translate to islands or little pockets of light. I kind of picture this, this is how I picture Zion in the last day. It's not so much that it'll all happen in one location. I think there's going to be these incredible pockets of light that when you're in the commotion of the world, you'll have a chance to retreat to those pockets and get solace and comfort. I just, I picture it almost like if you've walked in a big forest before and then all of a sudden there's this meadow clearing and you just get light. That's what I think will happen as we get closer and closer to the Lord's second coming, that the, the forest will get thicker and darker, but those pockets of light where we gather and rejoice will get warmer. It reminded me of when I was thinking through that pockets of light feel, I thought about the waters of Mormon. Don't you ever wish like 
You read about that with Alma and you think, I wish I could have been in that congregation. Like to, they were a meadow in a thick, dark forest where they just had this safe harbor for a time. Honestly, the first vision applies to this as well, right? He's in this thick forest where he feels increasing darkness as he's walking and then he hits this pocket of light and the goodness pours out, right? I just love this idea of we're going to glorify God in these pockets as we approach this day of Zion. 16 is kind of haunting. This is where Isaiah speaks of his leanness. He, Despite the fact that he has warned all these people all these times, most of them won't listen, and he feels leanness. He cries out. This to me is a little bit like the Savior with his 99, right? It doesn't matter that he has such a huge proportion of his sheep with him. He is missing that one, and he will seek it out. I think that's what Isaiah is feeling. He loves these people despite their wickedness, and he he feels lean because none of them are coming closer. And he warns about what's going to happen next. So when you go a little bit further, you'll see that, that he talks about the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is dissolved. This is all talking about the, right before the second coming. And as the second coming occurs, all those things will happen. And then I love what you see in 22. Again, this is Isaiah's voice of hope. And as they shall be gathered together, as prisoners are gathered in the pit, they shall be shut up in the prison. But then after many days, they shall be visited. This is the promise that I think lets Isaiah sleep at night. Again, this is me just making big assumptions about Isaiah, but I think knowing that all these people that he's watching languish and eventually get destroyed will be taught. It's going to be many days, and there's going to be a lot of suffering that happens because of their choices, but they will be taught. If you want to go learn more, go in the notes and learn more about Spirit Prison and how how they will be taught. I just thought it was beautifully worded. He again talks about the light that's going to shift. So if you look in 23, he talks about this Lord reigning over the earth and the light that will come because of it, that even the sun will be ashamed. You know, that's how bright these pockets of light are. When you shift gears and you go into 25, it gets even stronger. So again, he's talking about the latter days and he says, Oh Lord, thou art my God. I love this individual salvation message of Isaiah. He is teaching us to sing a song that we're going to sing as we experience His redeeming love, right? And it's, He is my God. Thou hast done wonderful things for me. And I just think you can insert all those things that you, that He's done for you, all the miracles and the tender mercies. That's what He's asking you to remember as you think about your Lord and your God. And then He talks about the character of Christ. So if you're looking for, thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat. One of the things I thought was really powerful about this is Isaiah is teaching us that the Lord's not removing heat and he's not removing storms and he's not removing distress. What he is doing is providing refuge. He's giving you shelter from those storms because he knows that we need the storms and the winds of adversity in order to progress and to grow. So he's not going to take those away, but he is going to give us respite. That's what he's describing. And so I love how he says it in five, as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible one shall be brought low. There's going to be this intense heat that burns and those who are choosing righteousness will have a cloud covering. And then you get this promised blessing of a feast of fat things. That's in six. That has reference back to the tabernacle and the sacrifices. When they would make big sacrifices, then after the sacrifices were made, after the animal was burned on the altar, that meat was divvied up and it became a feast for the family to consume and enjoy. And they would you know, have opportunities to partake of these fat things. That's the hope part of Isaiah's message in 25. But even though there will be all this leanness he will provide this feast of fat things that your family can be nourished by. In seven, he talks about a veil that will be lifted. I assume this is the veil of forgetfulness that will kind of eventually be pulled from our eyes and we'll see him as he is. And then you have to love eight, right? He will swallow up death and victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the rebuke of his people he shall take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken it. There's so many things in this verse that I love. I wish I had a whole bunch of minutes to spend on it. First, I love that he says that he will swallow up death. He doesn't get rid of pain. What he does is he takes it into himself. I, I like this because I feel like some of the pain that we all experience is actually sacred pain. 
it, it molds us. It turns us into the people that we are or that we're going to be. And it's not, he doesn't get rid of it. He, he takes it upon himself. I think that's how things work together for our good. He takes all the hard, all the cards we've been dealt and he says, let me take that into me and I'll just give you the good. I'll give you what's back. He honors the sacred pain you feel and he consumes it. And then he wipes away tears. I can tell you that there's, I counted on one hand the number of people who have ever touched my cheek and wiped away tears, right? Because that is an intimate, close gesture. So that he uses that almost speaking like a mother with their child saying, there is going to be a day where I will myself wipe away your tears. I love thinking about the judgment this way. I learned it from Michael Wilcox years ago where he talked about this experience when we go and present ourselves to the Lord and He is our advocate with the Father, that it's almost more like a PPI, <laughs> that you're going to sit in a, almost what it looks like a bishop's office. He described how he envisioned it and that it's just this one-on-one -on -one softness and kindness and tell me how this went. And when Brother Wilcox would say something that he thought he didn't do terribly well, the Savior would say back, I don't remember it like that. And it's just this kindness. That's what I think he's trying to help us understand. I also love what's at the end of eight. So he says, the Lord hath spoken it. This is not Isaiah's good idea. It's not a thought that Isaiah had. This is, the Lord taught this to me. He will wipe away your tears. He will swallow up your pain. All death will be swallowed up in victory. These are his words. And I love that he reminds us of that in that verse. And then there's this rejoicing. So if you look in verse nine, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God, and we have waited for him. When I picture sitting across from the Savior in those moments, right, where you're, where you feel his love and you participate in his redeeming joy, I think you'll, you'll recognize him as your God because you see him as he is. You see his boundless charity and you need it and you will rejoice because you feel who he is. And so you waited a long time and now he's there. And I just, I wept when I studied. I'm still kind of pulling it together right now, you guys. It's beautiful. Okay, we got to jump into 26. It gets even better in 26. So this is when he encourages you to trust in the Lord forever. So he says something beautiful. He talks about the gates being open, that eventually at this gathering, the gates will open. And then in three, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind has stayed on thee. I loved the phrase perfect peace. I've always thought of the Savior as the Prince of Peace, but the idea of perfect peace, meaning you know, perfect like we've talked about a few times, that teleos word, that means whole and complete. You will have a peace that feels whole and that it can't be shaken anymore. And all you have to do in order to accomplish it is to keep your mind on Him. I feel like this is pray always, right? If you pray always and you trust in Him, you will have this perfect peace. Probably not in this life. In fact, I guarantee not in this life, but there will be a day when you can have perfect peace. So trust in the Lord. That's what you see in verse four. And then he talks about the way in a couple different directions. So if you look in seven, the way of the just is uprightness. Thou most upright doth weigh the path of the just. If you go in the footnotes, you can learn that this, this version of way, like scales almost, also means to make level. When you think about scales and weighing, what they're doing is they're making things level. And that's what he's promising to do to this covenant path. If you commit your heart to him, if you choose to be a covenant person, he promises to clear the way to make that covenant path as level as he can get it and to remove the stones and the stumbling blocks. That's what he promises. What he gives you advice on is to seek him early. So if you look in verse nine, it says, I will seek thee early. I, there's a great talk from President Eyring in the notes where he talks about this, not procrastinating, not just repentance, but don't procrastinate your choice to come closer to him and the blessings that come from that. So go read President Eyring's talk. I love President Eyring. Okay, you go a little bit further in 12, and you're going to see that he, they talk about his works. What will help the children of Israel see Jesus Christ as their Savior is that they're going to finally set aside what was wrong. All the idols, all the false gods, all the misunderstandings about ordinances will be clarified, and they'll come to know him as he is. So that's what he's talking about. In 14, they're dead. They shall not live. These are the idols or the other things they worshiped. All that is deceased because we worship a living Christ. 
and they'll see that. We'll see that. Um, and if you go in the notes, you can learn more about how that document, the living Christ, and how it was built to some degree because of these verses. And I love what you see in the Lord's response. So that comes next. When you flip the page, he talks about how the Lord will increase the nations. Again, talking about the children of Israel, that Abrahamic covenant promise that their nation will increase, it'll thrive. There are historical applications to this, but millennially, there's great big applications to this. And then it speaks of resurrection. Most people don't think resurrection is in the Old Testament, but you can see it in 26, especially around 19, where he talks about how the dead men will live together with my dead body, meaning the, the Lord will be resurrected and others will be resurrected with him and there will be a rejoicing that happens. So he invites you to come in, in 20, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. I feel like this verse reminds me of that verse in the Passover where he talks about the destruction that's coming, that the destroying angel is going to come by and they need to stay in their homes and they need to stay safe for a season. I think that's what home-centered learning is all about, that there is going to be a time when we're going to need to have safe harbor right here and close ourselves off a little bit from the world. But the intent is not to stay there. It is to find refuge during this burning phase so that when it's time, you can step into the light and your family will have peace. So I think that kind of takes you to the end of chapter 26. Do you remember how last week we studied kind of that parable of the vineyard and the the Lord of the vineyard was just sorrowing because the vineyard grew wild despite his best efforts. And so he had to sort of dismantle all that he built. This chapter 27 is sort of the opposite of that. This is Zion and this vineyard will be fruitful in time, right? It'll take time. But when the Savior comes again, this will be a fruitful field just as intended. And so that's what you'll read about as you go into the verses. This is written to the members of the church, to those who are covenant keeping, and you can feel this surge of goodness in it. So if you look in verse three, for example, I, the Lord, do keep it. Speaking of the vineyard, I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. In the latter days, the promise is that this apostasy will never happen again. There will never be another time where we languish and fall away. Some hearts will, but the gospel itself will not. The keys will never be pulled again from the earth. He will keep it day and night, and he himself will water it. That's what I think of when I think of our prophets and apostles getting revelation to give us, that they are receiving this constant living water to pour out to the rest of us. And we get our own, right? We get our own personal revelation and we study the words in the scriptures so that we can, we can feel this surge of nourishing water that's coming day and night. There's no cutoff. There's no limit. It will constantly flow. And then he talks about making peace. So in verse five, he says, he shall make peace with me. I actually love that they separated out make and peace. Sometimes we talk about peacemakers and we think about it like somebody who helps kind of settle down contention, right? When I, the only time I say peacemaker in my house is when there's a fight and I say, can you guys be peacemakers? But when you think about these words as separate, I feel like it's even better. A peacemaker is someone who actually makes peace. So I feel like my job as a mom is to provide structure so that I can make space for peace. When I have a job chart, for example, there's far less fighting about whose job is what or why their job is harder because there's a clear plan, right? We have policies. Sam and Will used to fight every morning about who got the front seat on the way to school. And so just this year, we established a very simple rule that Sam gets it in the morning and Will gets it in the afternoon on the pickup. That simple rule stopped all the contention. So I think that's our job as parents is to find ways to make peace. The same way a bread maker makes bread and a shoemaker makes shoes, you need to make peace. I think in our bigger lives, it means making space for the Spirit to do its work. If you create environments, holy places where the Spirit can be, then you are making peace the way the Savior does. He also promises that his teachings will take root in this latter day. And I love this visual. So in verse six, he shall cause them that shall come of, that shall come of Jacob to take root. There's this like, oh, I'm gonna sink my feet into this soil and I'm gonna soak up the nourishment that's here and I'm gonna stay. That's, I think the, the profound promise of the latter days is that those who really sink in will stay. That's why I think we have to be constantly working on our testimonies and our understandings of the scriptures so that our roots go deeper and they can hold 
despite all the you know, crazy ideas and winds of doctrine that are going to come at us, our roots will be deep in this nourishing soil, this nourishing soil and will blossom and fill the face of the earth. That's the promise you see in 6. He also talks when you jump to the next page that he'll allow Israel to be conquered. So remember, we've talked about this a few times, but I really believe, in fact, Elder Holland taught this to me, that God doesn't inflict harm. He doesn't do anything to try and be malicious or you know, aggressive to, towards his people. He does allow hard things to happen and then promises to make all things work together for your good if you turn to him. That's what's happening with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, even the Romans in Jesus' time. He will take all those hard things that mortality is throwing at the Jews and he will funnel them to work together for their good. In their case, the good isn't going to come for a long time because they chose to turn away. But in time, they will turn to him because of the experience they had in the interim. So I think that's a powerful message. I also love his one-on-one ministry that you get a feel for. This is around 12 and 13. So he talks about when he comes and what this great gathering will look like and that it will be one by one. There's a great video, I'll give you a link in the notes, of Elder Bednar who wrote a hymn. I had no idea that even existed. I think it's Nathan Pacheco that sings it and then like a children's chorus or something. Um, But it's this message of one by one. I loved it because I actually read Elder Bednar's book on one by one ministry and I see him exemplify this. He just, he is, he and every other apostle and the prophet and all the female leaders of the church, they are seeking one by one ministering opportunities because that's the Savior's pattern. And I think it's ours too. This great gathering is not supposed to be a, we're going to host a big, you know, stadium style event and all these hearts are going to turn. It's going to be, I talked to my neighbor and I talked to my coworker and I brought my daughter back into the gospel. It's this one by one, my arm goes around you and I'm going to bring you home. That's the Savior's pattern. It's the one we need to learn and apply in our life. So that's 27. Now let's go into 28. 28 is a little different because he's starting to warn those who have fallen off. So during this great apostasy, like we talked about, one of the big problems they're going to run into is that they've distorted the doctrine. So he's warning about that in this chapter. He's talking about what's happening to the leaders of these religions and how things are falling apart. To me, the most powerful part of it, though, comes when he talks about Revelation and how it comes. So you can go in the notes if you want to learn more about the first five or ten verses, but I love what you see in 9. It says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? Because these people are limited in their sight and they have chosen to turn away, they have a murky view of truth. And he's wondering who he can teach. I actually think this is a really good visual for us to remember that the Lord is hoping and offering truth. The mysteries of the universe, as President Nelson taught, he's, he wants to give them to us, but we have to be ready to receive them. So he teaches you how those are going to come. If you turn to him, if you are seeking truth, he will give it to you. He's eager to give it to you, but it can't come all at once. I love this. This is in 10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line. You've heard all these phrases before, but I love how it's phrased here. A little there and a little here. To me, this is like parenting. (laughs) One of my biggest frustrations with scripture study and mothering is I feel like it only comes in little pockets. I can never take like 10 hours to study Isaiah. I have to do it like right before I'm, you know, I'm just getting in the zone and then I got to go to pick up and then I'm just getting in the zone. I got to take it to mutual and I'm just getting in the zone. I have to like stop and start and stop and start. It took me years to realize that that's actually the Lord's way of teaching. He can't dump it all on me in a five hour big block. He needs me to have time for the Spirit to teach me. So like I've told you guys a hundred times, there will be times where I don't understand scripture and then I'll go and I'll work on the laundry or I'll go answer emails or I'll go, you know, do my calling. And in that calling, as I'm serving, answers come. Clarity about the scriptures I was reading comes. And I think it's because of this doctrine. The doctrine, the true doctrines can't be dumped on you all at once. They're going to come layer upon layer upon layer. So don't feel so frustrated that your life is kind of a scattered mess. He can work with the scattered mess. I just think it's there's hope in that message, right? Okay, you go a little bit further and you see some of the, the problems that the children of Israel got into, like around 15, that they have made lies their refuge, that they are turning to the wrong hope. I think there are people in our day who are seeking shelter in 
false doctrine. You're hoping that certain doctrines will get adopted into ours, and they're taking shelter in those peripheral things instead of what the Savior actually has taught and what the apostles actually are saying today. They're seeking refuge and lies, and it, it never pans out. He directs us to seek the cornerstone. Just like we studied with that object lesson with the little blocks in 16, I lay I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and he that believeth shall not make haste. This is a direction of, it's a building metaphor where he's saying, if you align yourself with this core cornerstone, you can't go wrong. This applies to me a lot of times because I'm studying all kinds of sources for my gospel understanding, right? I'm trying to understand the Old Testament, and that means I'm seeking a whole bunch of different sources. But what I have to do as I'm studying all these different resources is I make sure they align with the cornerstone. So that's why my notes are so full of prophetic quotes, because I'll get an idea in my head. Sometimes it's my idea. Sometimes it's from a scholar or something. And then I go out and I make sure that somebody who is an authority in the church has said something similar, because then I know I'm aligned with the cornerstone. Because I know how, I mean, I don't know personally, but I can only imagine how many hours of time and prayer and fasting went into every one of those conference talks. So I feel like if I can find a reference that's similar in conference, then I can feel assured that I'm on the right track and that the revelation I'm getting is, is going to line me up with Jesus Christ. I think it's that cornerstone is really pivotal for us, not just in learning the gospel the first time, but in increasing our knowledge of the gospel. When you go a little bit further, he talks about his strange works. He phrases it that way. It's going to later be called, you know, a marvelous work and a wonder. But we are part of that strange work that's going to come forward. I love the word strange because it implies that it's unexpected. It comes from an unexpected source. I think the Savior exemplified this, right? He's the son of a carpenter. People said, like, is this the guy from Nazareth? It's a strange work, but it's his work. And then there is this beautiful analogy. I don't have time to go into it here. Um, but it talks about different seeds that are planted and how they are harvested. He's using this as a parable to teach us about all of us are unique and we are planted differently. Do you remember when I talked to you about Jacob 5 and how if you feel like you're planted in the farthest, most awful part of the vineyard, that means he's been nourishing your soil the whole time? That's sort of what he's teaching here with the cumin and the fitches. These are different types of seeds that get planted in different parts of the field. And what he's trying to teach you is that they are, he treats each individual soul differently. So if you're planted in a rockier part of the field, it means you probably are going to be harvested differently. (laughs) The wheat that gets the most rich, fertile ground of the whole field gets threshed. (laughs) It's it's a much harder process to get the seeds out than the cumin or the fitches that that are planted in kind of the less desirable parts of the field, but are harvested gently. I love this. There's a great devotional. I listened to it actually this summer when I was hiking, and I didn't quite catch it, the understanding of it until this week when I was studying Isaiah again. So go in the notes. There's this BYU devotional that he talks about understanding this in more detail, and I promise you're going to love it. Across the top of chapter 29, I have a marvelous work. and It's just amazing to me that, you know, almost like 3,000 years before these prophecies are fulfilled, Isaiah is able to see them and capture them. He talks about things speaking forth from the ground, voices coming up from the dust. And because of what we know with modern revelation, we know that this is the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And as we learn about this scattering and the fall of the children of Israel, you, we also see that same pattern in the Book of Mormon. So he can kind of compares them in this chapter. He's talking about the Nephites and the Jaredites that sort of met a similar end. And all of those voices are going to come forth. It's one of the things I love about the way the Lord does things. I love that Moroni is the one who brings the plates to Joseph Smith. Think about Moroni holding those plates. Like, I bet he grew up watching his dad compile them. I bet he saw all the stacks of plates in wherever Mormon kept them. And he watched his dad compile them over time and give his entire life to bring this work forward. So isn't it great that Moroni, who loves this book probably more than anyone else, gets to hand it to Joseph? That's what's coming forth out of the ground. It's not just a warning cry. It's a rejoicing that, okay, now my father's words and my ancestors' words and all of those other prophets are coming forth. And it is going to awake people from a deep sleep. That's what you see in verse 10. That there's this spirit of a deep sleep of apostasy that's settled in on the world, and it's about to wake up. 
So that the way that wake up happens is the sealed book that comes forth. So this a lot of people reference, and again, it's bigger in the JST version, but they reference this with Martin Harris and Charles Anthon because he he says, I can't read a sealed book. That's where, when we studied that in the Doctrine and Covenants, this is where those verses come from. And that's a beautiful way to read this. But I just have to teach you something that I learned from the Spirit about sealed books. So just to get a little personal with you here, one of my most common prayers when Jason was first diagnosed was, Heavenly Father, I need to know if he's going to make it. And I know I talk about cancer all the time, and I'm sorry for that, but that's the whole reason I'm in my scriptures all the time. <laughs> um, it's, I just needed to know uh, because it, it was the hinge point on so many decisions, right? Do I take a whole bunch of our money and put it towards this epic trip with our kids, or do I take that money and put it towards their college because he's going to be around a long time? Do I, you know, like I had all these decisions to weigh in my head. How how hard do we fight? What do we do? Um, and I just needed to know, is he going to make it or is he not? And I couldn't get an answer. I couldn't get an answer over and over and over again. And it wasn't until I was studying about the Book of Mormon and this understanding of a sealed book that the Spirit taught me that there are some revelations that are simply sealed. What was hard for me about not getting an answer to that prayer is I started to doubt myself. I started to doubt my ability to receive revelation. I started to doubt my worthiness to receive revelation. So the further I got along that path and the more I didn't get an answer to this big epic question, the more I was like, maybe it's because I didn't do scripture study last night. Maybe it's because I probably should do my ministering better. Maybe you're like, and you start to exhaust yourself thinking it's my fault that this book is sealed. What I learned from Joseph Smith's story is he was an incredibly virtuous, good man who never got to crack the seal on those plates because it's a sealed book and it wasn't time for that knowledge to come forth. And that's how I felt about the revelation with Jason. This piece of revelation about how things will go will be sealed. Once I understood that, I felt relief that I just, he wants me to go on faith. He wanted me to choose to live righteously no matter which end goal there was. He wants me just to do good and to be good. And it, then it won't matter, right? It doesn't matter how the end of the story plays out. If I choose to do good and to be good, then it will all work together for my good. So don't be afraid of sealed books. I think it's part of the plan because we have to act on faith. And I love that these verses reminded me of that revelation. There's also in 13 this warning about those who draw near unto them, to him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. This is certainly a warning to the people in Isaiah's day, in the Savior's day, in Joseph Smith's day. In fact, the Savior references this in the first vision, um, that the, the world is in this same state where people pretend to be close, but they're not actually close. But I think it's also a warning for us that sometimes we're going through the motions of the gospel, but our hearts just aren't deep. Our hearts aren't fully engaged, and he doesn't want that. In fact, it's one of the things I love about the Savior's character is that he wants a close relationship. He doesn't want a peripheral, you know, I know you, you know me. He wants closeness. And so he's warning about hypocrisy. And he always warns about hypocrisy. It's one of his big messages of his mortal ministry. And then he talks about the marvelous work. So around 14, this is when you start to see this bright burst of light in the verses about the goodness that is coming that wise men shall perish, that there will be knowledge that comes to the earth, and all of it will become because of the love of Christ for his people and his desire to shine forth in the darkness. So as the Book of Mormon rolls forward, you see these blessings come. So we're from like 17 to 24. This, I, These I've like written a big, you know, I don't know, like a big parentheses on the side and talked about the blessings of the Book of Mormon, because that's what comes, not just the Book of Mormon, but as the keys are restored and the sealing ordinances are restored, it's it's this fullness of the gospel, the blessings that pour out. There will be a fruitful field where there wasn't before. There, the blind shall see, the meek will increase their joy, the poor among men will rejoice, the terrible one is brought to naught. We'll have a clearer vision of who the adversary is, and he'll be weakened in his power because of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon that comes forth. I just loved it. In fact, if you look at 23 and 24, it talks about how understandings those who are erring in their understandings will have clarity. And I think these are incredible promises. What I loved about them is sometimes I have a bit of holy envy for those who got to see the ministry of the Savior on earth, to see him heal the blind, to see him make the lame walk. 
I wish I could have been there to watch that in person. What I love about this promise that you get in chapter 29 is that he's basically saying that as you help the Book of Mormon come forth, as you bring the fullness of the gospel to your family and your friends and your neighbors, you get to see these miracles occur. You get to see blind men see for the first time. You get to see the meek rejoice. You get to see those who are poor and afflicted find comfort. That's the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you wish you could have seen the miracles of Jesus in his day, watch them today. (laughs) Watch them physically happen in front of you as hearts and minds turned to their Savior for the first time. It's a beautiful promise. In 30, it goes even further. He's warning about the scattering and the gathering. So he talks about those who are taking counsel. Verse 1 just made me laugh because it reminds me of being a parent to adult kids or older teenage kids, that they take counsel from any source, but not from me. That's kind of how I feel sometimes. Then they'll listen to me and they'll nod their head, but then they'll take their guidance from anyone that is not their parent. And that's just that age, right? I'm sure I was the same way. But they're, he's warning them about Egypt. They're leaning on Egypt as their wisdom source and their protection source. Instead of making alliances with God, like we talked about last week, they think Egypt is going to save them. And of course, it doesn't. In fact, you see in 7, For the Egyptians shall help in vain to no purpose. Therefore, I have cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. I think it's hard, especially with your own kids, as you see them turn to other sources for comfort. If they start to walk away from the truths that really can tie them to Jesus Christ, they turn to other sources of comfort, lots of different ones. It could be their work, it could be their education, it could be a pet, it could be who knows what, any other source. Um, But they, all of those things simply sit still. They won't engage you, they won't help you grow. It is this warning, don't sit still. Don't rely on a source that can't bring you strength. Then he gives Isaiah guidance that he needs to write these things down. I thought this was good guidance for me as a parent because I think it's part of the reason I keep such extensive notes and even make these videos because <laughs> I feel like I want my kids to know my heart. I want their kids to know my heart. And I feel like if I capture it, if Jason and I work together and we capture this, even in just in these few years, we have hope, right? That this at least will be there. And I think that's what Isaiah felt too. The thing he captures is about prophets. So if you go on 10, he says, at the end of days, people will say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not, tell us smooth things, prophesy deceits. I loved this verse because I just sort of laughed at it. It's like making God in your own image. And I think we see this all the time in our world. There are people, I just heard a podcast the other day that from a faith-filled perspective started to kind of say to the brethren, you're in the way. It was a big red flag to me and I couldn't listen anymore because I they were basically saying like, oh, if we could just educate the brethren on this one issue, they'd get out of the way, the doctrine would change, and we'd be able to see the gospel more clearly, what what's supposed to be the gospel. And then that to me was like, oh, no, you just bypassed that cornerstone that we talked about. So there's warnings in there that you shouldn't seek smooth things from the prophets. You should never say to the prophets, don't give me advice. In fact, I want different advice because that causes a breach. So as you can see, this breach is talked about in 13. That basically, he uses the metaphor of a wall that's crumbling and has a big crack in it, and that at some point in time, it's going to break forth. It's going to crumble and fall apart. This literally happens to the children of Israel as the walls of Jerusalem crumble, and eventually, you know, they have to come back and restore the walls like we studied. But he's warning about that happening spiritually in our lives as well. Neil Marriott has a great talk on this. She talks about repairing the breach. So go in the notes and you can find that one. I loved it um, as well. At the second part of chapter 30, you'll see these promises of, if you're obedient, here are the blessings that come. So for me, I actually circled these and I linked them together. Like 18 and 19, I chain linked together. 20 and 21, 22 and 23. They talk about something you should be obedient in and then the blessings that come. So in 18, if you wait on the Lord and you're gracious, the promise that comes in 19 is you'll weep no more. You'll be a part of Zion. If you partake of the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, I loved those word choices. If you choose to endure it well, basically, the promise that comes is that you will hear words behind you saying, "Walk. this is the way, walk ye in it. When you choose to follow the path he puts before you, no matter how hard it is, the promise is you'll have guidance along the way. You'll have words behind you saying, you're on the right track. And boy, doesn't every one of us want that? 22 and 23 is, if you set aside graven images, not just 
images in their day, but our idols, things we worship in place of God or things we put in between ourselves and our bigger testimony that we need, if you set those aside, then there's rain that's coming. This is that living water that's going to make seeds grow and make your crops plentiful. That's the promise he's offering. You go a little further in 26 and he talks about the light of the moon and how when he comes again, that the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be even bigger than it is. I think this is the light of Christ just pouring out, but not just because it's beaming out from him, because he fills other people with it. I think before the Savior comes again, as hearts turn to Jesus Christ, you will see an outpouring of spiritual gifts, miracles, things that people see that they hadn't seen before. I think it's the nature of Christ to fill us with light, and that's going to create brightness all over the place. These pockets that we talked about before are going to start to come together. The forest gets thinner and thinner, and the pockets get bigger and bigger, and we rejoice in the light that's coming. And then you're going to sing this song. That's the end of this chapter, as he talks about a song of holy solemnity is coming. And then my favorite part in 30 is that the Lord shall cause His glorious voice to be heard. He will be part of this song, and we will rejoice in it together. And that takes you to the end of 30. If you're looking for a message of peace and hope and rejoicing, do not miss chapter 35. This is the promises of the restoration that will come forth, that the desert will blossom as a rose. There's a bunch of verses in here that are going to be familiar to you, and they're powerful. Honestly, I marked almost every single one to talk about, but we're going to be out of time. I just love the message of it. It has a lot of literal applications. Like we saw the desert of, you know, the Salt Lake Valley blossom as a rose as the saints came in to, you know, to live here. We use, you're going to see it in many manifestations. My favorite is on a spiritual level, though. I feel like there's a lot of hard things that all of us are going to experience. And the promise is, whatever spiritual desert you feel like you're walking in, if you come to Him and partake more fully of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you participate in this restoration that is occurring, your deserts will blossom. I love that promise. I just think there's power in understanding that that's not something we have to wait till the end of time to happen. Personally, individually, my deserts can blossom right now if I turn to the Lord, especially as I participate in the, the works of the restoration. I participate in the work of gathering the dead. I participate in studying the Book of Mormon and understanding its teachings. I participate with my priesthood leaders, and I learn from their teachings. All those things will help my deserts blossom. When you go a little further, you see one of the most epic promises of this restoration that will happen, that they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. I don't know if this necessarily means all people will see God um, during this restoration phase. What it means is that we will see who He is. We'll see God more clearly because we have not just the Bible, but also the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearly Great Price to round out our vision of who God is and how much He loves us. So then he gives us strength, right? He says, our work. Right here, I think at the beginning, he's talking about his work is to have this great restoration occur. Our work starts around verse 3, where he says, your job is to strengthen the weak hands, confirm the feeble knees, be strong, fear not, speak good. That's the message I got out of this, was our job is to help people see the restoration, to be this light so that other people will, it'll catch their eye and they'll be like, what is making you so joyful? Why do you feel this way despite your adversities? Tell me more about your church. That's the message that he's trying to get us to understand. And then you'll see these same miracles, just like we talked about. If you missed the miracles of Jesus in his mortal ministry, this is where you get to see them play out. As you help people turn to Christ, you see eyes that were blind start to see and wilderness break out. In fact, I love what you see in six. It says that we're going to start to sing because the wilderness will break out. The reason the wilderness shifts is because of the waters that come. We've made a lot of references to this lately, but these living waters that naturally come up out of the earth and spring forth to heal all things. Wilderness is the opposite of garden. So when you think of the Garden of Eden, when they reference wilderness, it means the opposite of a garden. It means there is, there's parched earth and it needs nourishment and these waters are going to break forth and will never be pulled back again. So then seven, the parched ground will become a pool, the thirsty land, springs of water. Then he talks about this highway. We referenced this a couple weeks in a row now, but as this gathering has to occur, there has to be this highway. Remember, he referenced a highway being the 
the road that goes between the big waves of the Red Sea, that's the highway. These miraculous openings for people to come to Christ will be available. I think every time we see a big step forward in like family search and how you can index and all those things, those are highways opening up so that more people can access these saving ordinances. I, there's a lot of application, but that's just one of them. And then he promises that on this highway, there's not going to be any dangers there, that it will be the redeemed that walk there. Those who understand, those who are willing to come will have safe passage through these big waves on this highway and that they shall obtain joy and gladness. And at the very end of 10, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. As we go along this highway, as we rejoice together and we sing, as we come to understand the fullness of the restoration and what a blessing it is to be planted in this vineyard at this time, we will have joy. We'll have gladness. No matter what our circumstances are, we will have our sorrow fade and our sighing flee. And I love that promise. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.